welcome. It's great to see you. Um, my name is John T. Um, and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. <clears throat> can, I be, <clears throat> can I be honest with you as we start? This has been quite, this has been quite a hard week. Um, and it's been quite a hard week because there are those moments in, their li- in life, aren't there, where we discover someone, something about someone that disappoints us. Do you know what I mean? Someone that we'd built up, someone that we'd looked up to, someone we'd respected, perhaps someone who'd had a profound impact in our spiritual lives. And then we discover something about them and we think, oh, that happened to me this week. Someone who was hugely influential when I was a student. And it really hurts. And what I want to do this afternoon is I want to show you that there is only one hero. There is only one that you must put your trust in. Because what you have in Genesis 16 is like that moment that happened to me this week. If you think Abraham is a good guy, you're about to have your bubble burst. And yet here's what's so beautiful about the Bible. It's honest. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't cover it up. It doesn't say, oh, well, perhaps they didn't really mean it. It just sets it out before us and says, don't put your hope in Abraham. You're going to need someone better than that. So can I say to you, this chapter has been exactly what I have needed this week. And I feel like God has ministered to me and spoken to me exactly what I have needed this afternoon. And I pray that for many of you, hey, for all of you, for all of us, God would do that for us. So let me read Genesis chapter 16. And it isn't a pretty chapter. Just to remind you, we come from the high point of Genesis 15. We were looking at this with Mike last week. It was terrific. God's great I will. God's great promise. God says, it's all on me. I'm the one who's going to make this promise happen. I'm going to be the one who upholds this covenant. It's all on God. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. But she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave him the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay, here's, here's where we're going to go this afternoon as we try and unpack this. We're going to see three big things. The first one is going to take the longest time. The second one will take the second most amount of time. And the third one, who knows if we'll get there, we might. But we'll see how we get on. Here's the first big lesson. Three big lessons that I believe that God wants us, his people, to learn from this uh, passage this afternoon. Firstly, he wants us to see the human obsession with taking control. You see, God has made this promise and he has literally just said, I will do it. I will, I will, I will. But the trouble is, it's taking a long time. And nothing's happening. And Abraham and Sarah are looking at each other going, well, when's this promise going to come true? We've been 10 years we've been waiting. And there's nothing. And so Sarah comes up with a plan and she says, look, the Lord has kept me from having children. Why don't we take your, my slave and and, and you could sleep with her and have a child. Now, I think if you'd asked them at the time, and this is really important, I think if you'd asked them, they'd have said, no, no, we believe God's promise. Because God has made a promise that there's going to be a child who comes from Abraham. And in the last chapter... Abraham had said, well, why don't we use, you know, another relative? Can't we just have another relative? And God says, no, Abraham, it will be a son coming from your body. So you can imagine the conversation where Sarah said, well, God said it will come from your body, but not necessarily from mine. Why don't we try some a different way? So I think they would argue that they are still trying to do God's work. They're still trying to be in line with what God says. But here is the the clearest and most obvious thing that is going on here. They don't pray. They don't ask. They don't talk to God. They scheme and they plan and they plot and they take matters into their own hands. They say, effectively, God is not really able to do that which he's promised to do and therefore he probably needs a little bit of our help. They're trying to play God. This is why that you've got to understand this. Doing God's work, but not by God's means, is not an excuse. It's, 
that doesn't make it okay. And you sometimes hear this, right? Someone's doing something, and they might be doing it in a slightly dodgy way, but, going, but at least they're you know, at least they're being effective. You know, people are becoming Christians, or this is going well, or this is excellent, or they're their hearts in the right place. But Genesis 16 screams at us, no, it's not. It isn't that there's this plan that needs to be fulfilled. It doesn't really matter. You get on and work it out. No, God's work needs to be achieved and fulfilled by God's means. Not by our human ingenuity and our cleverness, not by our plans and our scheming. And yet, isn't it so human to take control? Don't you find that? Don't you find you want to take control? You want to make sure that you've got everything sorted out? Yes, I'm trusting God. Of course I'm trusting God. I know that God, but I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to make sure I've got this in place. I'm going to make sure I've got enough money in the bank. I'm going to, make, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure I've got all this stuff in place. You see, Abraham and Sarai are not willing to wait. They want it, and they want it now. And you may say, well, is this, big, is this such a big deal? Yes, because there are four devastating outcomes that come when we try and take control. I want you to see this clearly, and I want you to try and map this onto your experience, all right? Have you seen the reality of this in your life or in the lives of others? When you try and take control, rather than trusting God, rather than depending on God and says, Father, what do you want? How do, I, how do I act in this situation? When we take matters into our own hands, this chapter shows us four devastating outcomes. Firstly, abuse. People get abused. When we try and do things in our, in our when we take control, other people get deeply, deeply harmed. Hagar, she's a slave. She's an Egyptian. And she's reduced to an object. They don't talk to her. They don't say anything to her. They don't discuss the idea with her. She is an object to be used to fulfill this plan that they've concocted. We've got an idea. Let's just use this object that's in our house. Taking control actually always leads to us trying to manipulate other people and treating them for our own ends. Do you know, I, one of the things that made me slightly sad, and maybe, I'm, maybe you think I'm wrong on this, but one of the things that made me pretty sad this week was I read... I read and I listened to a couple of sermons on this, and nearly all of them said that this actually was culturally quite normal. It was actually quite common for this to happen. You know, for a woman who wasn't able to have a child to build a family through someone else. And so they sort of, everything I was reading was saying, it's sort of understandable. It, it wasn't that weirder thing to do. I think that's profoundly wrong. And I think the clue is all in the text that this is wrong. Listen, just listen to this language and see if you can pick up any hints. Read from verse, um, halfway through verse two, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar 
and gave her to her husband. Come on, you don't have to be a genius to see that this has happened before. You take something and you give it, give some to her husband. This is exactly the, mis- the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve. Taking something and giving it. And I think the writer to Gen- of Genesis is indicating that this is a deeply sinful act. This isn't just culturally okay. Hagar gets reduced to this position of being an object. I haven't got time to deal with the stuff on the questions around slavery at this point. But even that is here, right? Slavery is wrong. And the Bible says over and over again that slavery is wrong. And yet time and again you find people, even people like Abraham, who take slaves. Abraham shouldn't have had slaves. Yeah, but everybody in those days had slaves. Doesn't make it right. And the Bible's not afraid to call it out and say, no, this is wrong. It's just wrong. People get abused. And I think we do this. Okay, fine. I don't know what you're like. This is what I do. I see this in me. That when things aren't going quite the way I want them to, I try and force it. I try and get people to do the things I want them to do in order that my plans can be worked out. I think parents do this with their children. Can I be honest with you? When I was, um, when my kids were little, I found myself getting very, very angry with them in church when they were like toddlers. And, I, and one day it hit me, the reason I'm angry with my children is because they're making me look bad. Because they're not behaving in a way which makes me as a dad look good. And what if people don't think I'm a very good dad? And what if that disqualifies me from being a pastor if I can't even manage my own household? So children, you must obey because I have a plan and I have a purpose and I have a job and I have a career and you better not stuff it up. Do you see how that can happen? I had to repent of that. I had to let my kid... I still get it wrong. Friends do this with friends. We can use our friends in order to get what we want. Bosses do this with their employees. Pastors do this with their congregations. I remember listening to an American pastor who said once that he'd been very challenged by this because he said, again, it was the same thing. He was getting angry with his congregation because they were stopping his great dream of this great church he was going to build. They weren't doing enough. They weren't, and so he'd shout at them to get them to do stuff. And this is, this is what I think can happen, when, and it's an evidence that we're beginning to take control and we're beginning to want to drive the thing ourselves. So we criticize people, or we see everybody we meet as an opportunity to further our plans for the future. And that leads to the second great outcome, and that's conflict. Suddenly there is disharmony, there's bitterness, there's hatred. 
They've tried to force a situation rather than wait for God. And now the home has become a place of hostility rather than a place of peace. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now this relationship is completely destroyed. Do you know, you can spot when people are trying to take control because it creates an atmosphere of hostility, not an atmosphere of peace. If you are in a team that is hostile, if you're in a team where there's conflict and, and there's, um, I mean, there's, good, there's good sorts of conflict, right? But if you're in a team that's, where there's bad conflict, you can bet your life that somewhere in that team there is someone who is taking control and trying to drive things for their own ends. And it may not just be one person, it may be several. But you see that this is what happens when we take control rather than just wait and let God be God. Let God do his great I will work. That leads on to blame. Suddenly they're blaming one another. Sarah said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Suddenly this marriage now has become a place of blame, pointing the finger, just as Adam blamed Eve. So now Sarai blames Abraham. And it's like, but Sarai, it was your idea in the first place. But that's not the point. There's blame now bubbling up all over the place. And Abraham, look at his response. Your slave is in your hands. He washes his hands of it. No one is acting honorably. This is my point. Because once you step down this road of taking control, the wheels start to come off. People get abused. Conflict arises. And then people start blaming one another. And if only at some point someone, Abraham or Sarah, had said, I think we're wrong. This was wrong. God, we're wrong. We're sorry. But no one's willing to stop this careering train that's heading over a cliff. They just doubled down on it. And Abraham says, Sarah, she's in your hands. And the final stage, I think, is isolation. Where Sarah ill-treats Hagar, and so she runs away. And what you end up with is not people in beautiful relationships, but people who are living apart from one another. Loneliness. People move away. People move away. It drives people away. When we try and take control of situations ourselves, it normally ends up with things splitting and people moving away from one another. It's pretty grim, isn't it? I warned you, this is not a pretty chapter. I wonder if you can see any of that reflected in your own heart. This is why you need Jesus to be your hero. Here is the thing that has ministered so deeply to me this week. Jesus lived in days when women were abused and treated shamefully, but he never treated women that way. Jesus lived in days when slavery was widespread. Everybody had slaves. Jesus never owned a slave. He never owned anyone. Jesus lived in days of religious abuse and manipulation, but Jesus never used religion as a tool to gain power from himself. Jesus had phenomenal power to heal. 
He could have built a massive empire. He could have done anything. He could have been the richest, the most comfortable, the most glorious king on earth. And yet, instead, he used all of that power to to serve. You find me one miracle that Jesus did for himself to make his life better. Every person that Jesus met, his approach to them was not, how can you serve me, but how can I serve you? Every person Jesus met, it was not, how could you further my plans and my purposes, but how can I minister to you? That means you never have to make excuses for Jesus. There are no shameful episodes. There are no skeletons in the cupboard. There are no secrets that are going to be exposed by the tabloids. You can trust him completely. Isn't that beautiful? Every other human leader, every other human being, you should always treat with that sense of caution. Because you don't know. And actually all of us have things that we're ashamed of, but not Jesus which makes him beautiful, right? Makes him the only hero that's worth having. Makes him the only one that's really worth trusting. Jesus is awesome. He never abused. Only served. So as you find yourself being exposed by Genesis 16, and as I find myself being exposed by Genesis 16, let it drive you to the one who truly and only is the hero that you need. Don't pin your hope in human leaders. Whatever you do, don't pin your hope on me. Because I might let you down. Because I'm frail and I sin. And I mess up. And by God's grace, I desperately want to serve you. But I might get it wrong. Jesus never will. Trust him. Let's look at the second thing. It was the first. I told you that was the longest one, right? So don't. That's so We're okay. Here's the second thing. And it does get better now. After this ugly first scene, the second thing we discover is the beautiful God who sees the unseen. So have a look at verse 7. After all that Hagar has been through, okay, let's, let's try and get into the story, right? Let's try and, I know it's tiring this afternoon. Let's, let's try and get into the, the story. After all that Hagar has experienced, look what happens next in verse 7. The angel of the Lord, okay, hang on a second, right? Angel of the Lord, who's that? What's that? Anyone know what that is? I'm not really expecting anyone to answer, but tell me about angels. We, we know about angels, right? Everyone knows about angels. Angel Gabriel appears in the nativity. What do we know about angels? Well, angels are messengers from God, okay? They tend to come with messages. They don't tend to have tinsel or wings, but it's cute, so we put them on. So here comes the angel with a message, but this angel is more than just a messenger. I'm going to show you why. This angel is not just a messenger. This angel is a mediator of God's presence. Not just a messenger, but a mediator of the presence of God. You see, what is Hagar's response when she sees the angel of the Lord? What's her response? 
Does she fall down? Does she cry out? Does she scream, ah? No, she just answers his question. What do you suppose that means this angel of the Lord looked like? I assume he looked like a man, a human. So this angel of the Lord meets with Hagar in an appearance that doesn't freak her out. But now jump down to verse 13 and look what Hagar says about her experience. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Right, let's piece all this together. Come on, stick with this. Right, piece all this together. Here is an, an appearing of a human. But now Hagar gets to the point of saying, I've seen God. So the angel of the Lord is the means by which God, who is invisible and amazing and glorious and holy, it's the means by which God makes himself meetable. That makes sense? There are other places in the Bible where it's crystal clear. You cannot see God and you cannot meet God. When God appears on Mount Sinai, everyone's told, no, you've got to stay at the bottom. You've got to stay at the bottom. You can't go up. You can't go see God. You can't see God. You can't go see God. He's too holy. And yet in this random little place, this Hagar meets God. (laughs) So when you read the angel of the Lord... You you are reading about the mediator of the very presence of God. This is God come in a human form so that someone might meet with him. God come in a human form. Which of course is a forerunner of what God is going to do. God does this in a few places in the Old Testament. Not hundreds, but in a few. But then suddenly he does it maxed out. When it isn't just a temporary mediation of the presence of God, but God himself takes on human form, becomes fully human so that we can meet with him. You see, God is meetable because he has chosen to make himself meetable. He does it in the Old Testament through the angel of the Lord. And all of that is pointing to Jesus. Jesus, who is the way that you meet God. All that to say, Hagar has this extraordinary privilege of meeting God. And just have a look at the details. This is the beautiful God who sees the unseen. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. There we go. Look, it all starts with God. He comes looking for her. He finds her. And then he speaks to her. Hagar. Who is the first person in the Bible to speak to Hagar? Who's the only person to speak to Hagar in this story? She's been treated as an object. She's been treated as someone to be passed around and to be used. And now suddenly, when God makes himself meetable, he calls her by name, Hagar. Hagar. 
Where have you come from and where are you going? Hey, God, I'm interested in you. I want to know about you. Does God know where she's come from and where she's going? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But this is God saying, Hagar, I care about you. I see you. And Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel says, go back to her and submit to her. Now we'll come back to that in a second. That's hard. We'll come back to that in a second. But now notice, the angel then makes these promises. I will increase your descendants so much, they'll be too numerous to count. That sounds a lot like what God promised Abraham. And now he's promising it to this random Egyptian slave. And what we're going to see through this is that God has a care and a concern that goes way beyond what we think it goes to. He knows her future. You'll give birth to a son. You shall call him Ishmael. Why? Because the Lord has heard your misery. Ishmael, every time she calls her son's name, it will remind her, God hears. That's what his name means. Ishmael, God hears me. He hears me. It's very beautiful. And then she's told this about Ishmael, which probably isn't quite so encouraging. He will be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) Wow. Imagine being told that. (laughs) His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he'll live in hostility towards his brothers. I think what we're being told here is that God says, I know, I know your future. I know your descendants. I know the nation that will come from you. I know about Ishmael. He's not unknown. And yes, there will be conflict and it will be hard. But the point here is, I know. You may well be aware um, that many uh, trace the Arab people um, to Ishmael and are descended from Ishmael. This is very commonly how this is understood. And in fact, some people would go so far as to say that this is a prophecy about the, the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews being played out even today in the Middle East. I don't think that's what this is about. I think this is about God saying I have my people, yes, I have my people, and it will be through Abraham and through Isaac and through Sarai that my people have grown. But don't for one second think that that means I don't care about all the other nations. Don't for one second mean the thing that I don't know about the other nations. I read one thing this week that said, oh, if, you know, if Abraham hadn't stuffed up with Hagar, there would be no conflict between the Arabs and the Jews. I'm like, Really? No, there was always going to be this conflict because we live in a sinful world where people are taking control and matters into their own hands. There's always conflict. There's always conflict between God's people and those who are not God's people. That's always been the way. But I think for the first readers of this, Israel is about to enter the promised land. This is God saying, I care more about the Egyptians than you do. Remember, the Egyptians are going to be the ones who enslave God's people. And yet God says, no, I know them. I know them. They're not outside of my control. They're not outside of my knowledge. I know them. 
It smashes elitism. It smashes Israel saying, why would God appear to an Egyptian slave? Surely God's only concerned about us. If we think that, we're badly mistaken. In fact, could it be that actually God is passionately committed to those who are unseen, to those who are abused, to those who are crushed, to those who are badly treated? God sees. And could it be this afternoon that that is what you desperately need to know? God sees you. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. See, it's not just that that God sees her, it's that she sees God because of this angel of the Lord figure. It's not that God is like some CCTV camera in the sky, right? I mean, wherever you're going in London, someone is watching you. So you could say, well, God sees great. Well, so does TFL. (laughs) Great, there's another one up there, and it's watching all the time. God doesn't watch like a CCTV camera. He watches like a a parent, like someone who cares and loves. And then he comes to Hagar, and he reveals himself so that she knows that he sees her. Could it be that... That's what you need to know this afternoon. You feel unseen. Perhaps you feel unseen. You feel invisible. What a curse it would be to be the invisible man. To never be seen. Perhaps some of you feel like that. Perhaps some of you even tragically feel like that in our church family. You come to church and you feel like no one sees you. If that is you, I, I, I'm sorry. But God sees you. He sees the unseen. And of course, when you read on through the Bible, it's one of the things we're told about Jesus all the time. He saw, he saw. He saw a woman crying. He saw a man begging. He saw a tax collector collecting taxes. He saw a vast crowd and he had compassion on them. He saw, he saw, he saw. He sees you. And when he sees you, he acts to love you, even to die on a cross for you. And I think that here, here is where true comfort can be found, even when you are being asked to submit in an unjust situation, you're seen. This is, I think, why the angel says to, to Sarah, I go back to that situation. It's a horrific situation, but I see you in it. God doesn't promise to always take you out of your horrible situation. He doesn't promise to always take you out and to to remove all the injustice immediately. He promises to see you there. And you can trust him to deal with it. But you might have to wait. And so here is this chapter which points us so clearly to Jesus the only hero that we desperately need we're not going to do the third point we'll just do this this is enough so this afternoon do you find yourself trying to take control let's stop doing that let's stop trying to run things our way let's wait on God let's pray that doesn't mean we don't ever do anything but it means you pray God, I'm thinking of taking this job. Help me to know if it's right. 
I'm thinking of doing this thing. I'm thinking of moving into this flat. I'm thinking of inviting this person over. Lord, please help me to know if that's right. We wait on him. We allow God to be in control. We hand over control to God. And then you find peace in the God who sees you. Why don't we take a moment? Let's take a moment of quiet. I don't know which of those is what you particularly need to hear this afternoon. Perhaps some of us need to repent of our taking control. Perhaps some of us need to know that we are seen where we are. And whichever you are, Jesus is your hero. And he won't fail you. Let's, um, let me pray and then we're going to spend some time singing and reflecting on this together. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful chapter, this ugly chapter, beautiful, it's full of everything. It's challenging to us. We find ourselves very like Abraham and Sarai trying to take control. Lord, we ask you to help us to trust you, to wait for you even when things seem slow. But thank you that you're the God who sees. Thank you that you're the God who has made yourself meetable, that you've taken on human form so that we might know you and see you, the one who sees us. And so, Father, please, this afternoon, even as we now spend some time singing and praying, would you minister to us by your Spirit Would you take this truth, these words that have been spoken? And Father, please, would you help us to see where we need these words this afternoon? Please, would all of us be changed as we reflect and think about what we've heard? In Jesus' name, amen.